Ramble. I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And Teresa was always one for adventure, especially in relationships. She even tested out a sugar daddy or two. It worked pretty well, but nothing, nothing prepared her for her new boyfriend, David, and David's crazy ex-girlfriend. I know what you're thinking. Maybe David is lying. Maybe his ex-girlfriend wasn't actually crazy. Maybe he was just gaslighting her and pretending that he wasn't cheating on her, but he actually was. But no. It's not one of those stories. His ex-girlfriend was actually wild. Sure, Teresa might have felt something for the fact that David's ex-girlfriend was beautiful. She had the perfect hourglass figure. She was sexy. She was incredibly kinky in bed. I mean, these are all things that are bound to make any new girlfriend jealous. But it was more than that. There was something definitely wrong with his ex. She heard all the stories. For one, everywhere this girl walked. She brought a cloud of perfume with her. She never showered. She just reapplied 17 spritz of perfume every single morning to mask the stench. She would leave David for days on end, and then David would finally find her sitting on a bed surrounded by guys. Sometimes she would jump out of David's moving car if she didn't like what he was saying. Even David was alarmed, and he shyly told Teresa that his ex had an Electra complex. She worshipped her own father, and she wanted to call David Daddy. But only if she could pretend to be seven years old while they did it in bed. Teresa was really nervous about his ex-girlfriend, for good reason. But she should have been scared of David, too. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is an incredible book on this case called Cold Kill by Jack Olson. May he rest in peace. I really don't know what else to say about this book other than the fact that Jack Olson was truly an amazing author. I... I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, if I can even say that. Enjoyed the book in the sense that he really made you feel like you were there with all the people involved. The roller coaster of emotions that you feel during this case is so intense and it's so raw and it feels so real. It's truly the best deep dive on this case. You'll see in the source notes that there are some shows on this case and everything, but wow, this book, you need to pick up a copy. So with that being said, Teresa is 23 years old when this all takes place, when her life just gets turned upside down. She had a pretty decent life up until this. It was a bit unconventional, but that's just kind of how she liked it. 
Her dad was a dentist and he kept telling her, this is a good job, stable income, stable hours, no emergencies. Typically, you should be a dentist. It just did not tickle her pickle. It wasn't interesting enough for her. She joined the Navy instead. She worked as an air traffic controller. She's surrounded by mainly men all day, and she learned really quickly how to fit in. She did not bat a single eyelash to hard liquor, cursing, fistfights. Nothing could get this girl unsettled. She probably wouldn't even get up from the table if two dudes just started decking each other in the face right next to her. She would sip on her beer, and that's just kind of what the Navy did to her. She was discharged, and she decided to kind of dabble in modeling. Then she did some acting. Then she was even an extra in some movies. (laughs) She did some waitressing. She even dabbled in being a full-time sugar baby. I mean, Teresa's career was hectic. It was just, she never, she was kind of disorganized. And her love life was just as hectic. One time, she even dated a private investigator named Mike Manila, and his work seemed interesting. She told him after they broke up, hey, Mike, let me know if you ever need my help. Side note, imagine dating a private investigator. I always wondered, like, imagine you're dating an FBI agent. I, yeah. I'm not even hiding anything. I would just feel weird. Yeah, I'd exactly. feel like you know too much, right? Like, you got yeah. the upper hand. What kind of hacking are you doing? Don't be weird. Anyway, back to the story. So, Teresa, she does a little bit of everything, but she was never really able to, to find a career path that worked for her. She had the personality that was just so bored so easily, which is why she ended up dabbling in cocaine and other so- drugs. So bored so easily. Yeah, just so bored. Everything that she does, she's like, oh, I'm over it in a day. It's just not enough. It's not enough stimulation. She was so disorganized, chronically late to everything. She would be 30 minutes late to a meeting and her mom would rush into the room. Sweetie, you were supposed to leave like an hour ago. What are you doing? Teresa would scream back. I know, I know. But mom, have you seen my left shoe? I can't find it. December 19th, she ends up finding her left shoe and she goes out to meet a guy named Charlie. Now, she really needed to talk to Charlie. It was urgent. She went to the address that Charlie had given her and it was a normal single family home. She rang the doorbell. No answer. Fuck. She really needs to talk to Charlie. Maybe he's just not home yet. So she goes back to her car, waiting for Charlie to get home and she sees this young man walking towards the house. She jumps up. Charlie! Charlie, it's me. We spoke on the phone. And the guy swerves around and says, uh, sorry? No, my name is Robin. Well, is there a Charlie here? No, nobody named Charlie lives here. Fuck. Are you sure? Yep, pretty sure. Damn it. I came all the way out of here. Do you know a Charlie? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to pick up some stuff. Yeah, drugs. She's implying she's picking up drugs from a guy named Charlie, right? Mm. Oh, sorry. I, I don't know a guy named Charlie. Well, can I use your phone? I must have gotten the address wrong, and I just don't want to drive all the way back. If I could just verify the address of my sister, it's just a quick call. Uh, sure, come inside. So Robin lets Teresa in, and while she's using his phone to call her sister, Robin is eyeing her up and down. He's thinking, wow, she's she's hot. She's wearing this black jacket, these tight pants, and... She was tall. She had these great legs. Robin is practically drooling at this point. And you know what? Teresa notices. Let's be real. But I guess she found him cute too. Sorry, the line's busy. My sister's not picking up. Can I try in a few more minutes? Sure. But to thank you, maybe you want to smoke a joint with me? I have one in my purse. So the two of them, they start getting to know each other. And Robin cuts the date. I guess it's not a date. He cuts the talking short and he says, oh, shoot. Sorry, do you want to give your sister a call right now? I actually have to leave soon. I'm meeting a friend of mine at the bar. Unless you want to come? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's no Charlie here. I'll just, yeah, let's go. Whatever. I'm already out here. I'll go with you. And that's how Teresa 
meant David West. David was a friend of Robin's. He was the guy that Robin was meeting at the bar. Oh, okay. And David was an interesting looking guy. He had something called a heterochromia, which means that his two eyes are different colors. Huh. Yeah, one of his pinkies was missing. He was also in the Navy. He dressed like a bad boy. He wore tight jeans, motorcycle boots, a Harley Davidson shirt. And it was obvious. The guy worked out. He worked out a lot. He had this eagle tattoo on his arm. And you know what? He looked conventionally hot, I guess. And unfortunately for Robin, Teresa thought so too. Teresa and David immediately catch each other's attention. David was very much into Teresa. Why? Because she was tall, blonde, and had blue eyes. That was his dream girl type. Listen, David would never call himself a Nazi, but I would. Okay, sorry, let me explain. David would say things like, listen, I'm not a Nazi, but... Which is probably just the worst way to state any opinion because it's probably not the right opinion. But that's how he said it. He said, listen, I'm not a Nazi, but Hitler had a few good ideas. <laughs> he just went about it the wrong way. But I do think that the idea of creating a superior race of human is pretty neat. David claimed that he was just attracted to tall, blonde, strong women because they were, quote, breedable. What the fork? David always wondered why he was so bad with women. <laughs> Apparently, he didn't think that being a Nazi sympathizer should detract his chances in the dating pool. It wasn't even just that, though. Even when David found a girlfriend, he gave his all into the relationship. Even just last year, he was positive that he had found the one, the love of his life. But she ghosted him out of nowhere. He just really never got over his ex. Now, in the bar with Teresa, maybe this was his chance. Teresa, right? Where are you from? Oh, St. Louis. I was in the Navy there. The Navy, huh? I was in the Navy, too. Honorably discharged. So the more they talked, the more they realized that they had a lot in common. And there was just this instant spark. Robin was getting a little bit annoyed. And honestly, he started to feel like the third wheel. So he just left. He didn't want to sit around, watch his friend getting with the girl that he brought to the bar. <laughs> so he gets up and leaves. And after a while, Teresa and David, they start heading towards the exit. Now, David is not the type to make a move on the first date. He typically knows that women don't like it. But he's tipsy, so why not? He scrunches up his lips, closes his eyes, leans in for a kiss, and Teresa backs off and gets in her car. Well, that was awkward, but oddly enough, Teresa still wanted to go on a date with him the next day. So maybe this was just her setting boundaries. That's admirable. So they were going to meet up at the bar again tomorrow. But when tomorrow came, Teresa walks into the bar with a long-haired dude named Alan. And David's like, what the heck? Who the fork is this guy? He's confused. I didn't invite this guy. I thought it was just you and me. This is, I'm not looking for a thruple or anything, Teresa. Oh, sorry. This is, this is the younger brother of my brother-in-law, my sister's husband. So my sister's husband, Buddy, he's kind of, um, I live with them and he's kind of in charge of the house. Anyway, my sister and I aren't allowed to the house without a guy escorting us. So I came with my brother-in-law's little brother. David decided to tolerate Alan for Teresa's sake. He knew all about toxic relationships and Teresa's sister was clearly in a toxic relationship. So while Alan is off getting drunk, Teresa opens up a little bit about her home life. Her sister's husband had actually tried to hit on her right before he got married to her sister. She described him as a domineering son of a bitch. And oddly, he doesn't like anyone being out of the house. I have to lie to be able to come out. They're, they're just scared, I guess, that I'm going to find myself in trouble again. I, I used to do a lot of drugs. Anyways, what about you, David? T tell me about yourself. Uh, well, I'm driving a delivery truck right now, but I'm trying to open up a bar with my friends. 
oh, wow, a bar. That sounds kind of expensive. Where are you going to get the money? Well, one guy already made an offer. Plus, I have a few other sources. My ex-girlfriend owes me a ton of money. Oh, the old rich girlfriend story. Well, well, not like that. I mean, I guess it is. Her parents died and she's inheriting some money. She possibly wants to invest in a bar with me. Oh, sorry. How did they die? Car accident. It was the second time David had told that lie. There was a lot about David that Teresa would soon learn. Firstly, David had a bit of an anger problem. He drew the line where he perceived men to be disrespecting women. If he even so much as saw a guy hitting on a woman at the bar and she seemed disinterested, he would jump up to fight the guy, like straight up deck him in the face. No warning. Which I guess if you look at it, maybe it's like a good Samaritan type of thing to do, but it seemed like David just got off on the fighting aspect. Even though he wasn't good, more often than not, he would be beaten to a bloody pulp and the person that he was trying to beat up would walk away with no scratches so what's going on he just really liked to start fights he never really was able to pull through on them he would even straight up say he was beating the piss out of me i tried to kick him in the groin but i couldn't reach he was so big anyway someone came along and broke up the fight in time i would have been really screwed (laughs) now to be fair the man weighed 250 pounds i'm a lean 150 the guy was a bit smaller i would have beaten him up Mm-hmm. One night at the bar, David was trying to start a fight and some dude yelled at him, quit it. What's wrong with you? You're a menace to society, bro. To which David responded, no, I'm a menace to the menaces of society. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he was the Robin Hood of the bars. Okay. But once in a while, even David would admit that he took it too far. He lost his temper a lot. Maybe it was a traumatic head injury he had when he was three years old. He had fallen off his bike. Maybe that had something to do with it. Or maybe it was his upbringing. David's childhood was intense. David would never admit it because he fancied himself an intellectual. He considered his parents classe. He bragged about it. They worked behind the scenes in a theater. Yeah, a theater. And David's mom was obsessed with literature. He frequently sprinkled literary references in his conversations. But no, 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 we're not talking Hunger Games. We're not talking Harry Potter. I'm talking he would be mentioning philosophers' names. He would be mentioning olden day books that you and I would never read because they're so boring. But he would mention it. He only ate healthy food. He liked to work out. He didn't smoke, drink, do hard drugs. And he had two pit bulls that he adored. But more importantly, David loved to talk about all of this. He was one of those guys. Maybe it was his way of covering up his rough childhood. Do you guys remember the Bakeland case? David's upbringing is very reminiscent of Barbara and Brooks. If you remember, there's an emotionally unavailable father, an overbearing mother who just has no boundaries with her child, and there's issues with her marriage, so she just assumes her son is going to take on the role of her emotional support husband, and things just end up really bad. That's kind of how David's life was. David's dad, Duval West... What a name, Duval. Duval had been married before David was in the picture. He met his first wife when he was young, and the two of them had a daughter. Now, after the divorce, the first wife had convinced their daughter to never talk to Duval again. I don't know. Maybe she was like, your dad is horrible. He's a deadbeat dad. And it worked because the daughter never reached out to her dad. So Duval knew that she was out there somewhere living her life without him. He knew that she had kids. He didn't know how many or even how old they were. He felt like he could pass her any day on the street and he wouldn't even recognize her. And that just tore his heart apart. 
Duval would never really get over this. So even when he remarried a woman named Cecilia, he just wasn't that emotionally available to her. He spent most of his time smoking a cigarette, reading Edgar Allan Poe or Jane Austen. Even when Cecilia had a son, David, you would think, oh, this is Duval's second chance, right? He just couldn't get over his first family. He shut his son out. Little David would be so excited to see his dad. He would rush up to hug him when he got home from work. Duval would literally swat away his son like a giant bug. He'd say, when I come home, you got to stop rushing at me. I just don't like it. It's too much. Cecilia would see this and get so upset. So she became the opposite. Now, it's hard to say if she was overcompensating for her husband or maybe it's just her personality. But Cecilia quickly became the overbearing mother. She meant well. I mean, she tried her best to be there for David. She taught him sports, walked him to Boy Scout meetings, taught him how to shoot a gun, but also taught him how to deeply respect women, which is a very important lesson, okay? But her execution was just a little bit off. By the time David was like seven, she would sit him down. David, you have no idea what it's like being a woman. David, one night I was walking home and this car pulled up right in front of me, blocked my way. I looked up and the driver and I make eye contact. And he's kind of moving around in his seat. And I thought maybe he was having a heart attack or a seizure. But I looked down and I saw that he had taken out his penis. And he was masturbating while staring at me in the beam of his headlights. But get this, David. He was masturbating with a bloody towel in his hand. Oh, I was so scared I ran all the way home. The kid is seven. What? And by the time that David is eight, he was diagnosed with anxiety. But hey, at least he respected woman. It was just a really bad execution. I get the message, but like, come on now. Yeah, what is yeah. a seven-year-old gonna... How are they gonna react to this story? Exactly. I don't know why she told him that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Like, would I respect women after hearing a story like this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a lesson to be taught because the guy... About respecting women, Exactly, because yeah. the guy is not even a normal guy. Something is really wrong with this masturbator. I don't know. Masturbator. <laughs> it's just really weird. David respected women, and maybe he even went overboard at times. The best way to describe it that I can find is David is one of those guys that would follow girls home to make sure that they made it home safe. But in reality, they were the creepy ones that the girls are running from. David didn't do that, at least that we know of, but this was his vibe. But that was Mm -hmm. exactly how people felt. It was just a bit too intense. He came Mm -hmm. off a little strong. Oh, and his idea of respecting women was protecting them from other men, but not his words. So he would say things like, and he thought this was a compliment. He'd say things like, listen, you know, you're fat, but you're pretty. You just need some exercise and you need to cut out the carbs and you could be a supermodel. You have the potential. You have the features for it just under all the layers of fat. I can see it. I think if you lost some weight, your cheekbones would be really good. Good eyes. This guy genuinely thought that this was a compliment. So either he was suffering from extreme lack of social skills. I don't know. I mean, no wonder he can't find a girlfriend. But that never stopped him from trying. A for effort, David. David wanted to be a knight. The guy that saves the princess. He just had this intense hero complex. Maybe it was because he was bullied throughout his childhood. He was physically smaller. He was a bookworm, literally a bully's dream target. Maybe that aspect, coupled with the fact that his mom taught him to respect women, maybe he felt like he was only worthy and useful when he was protecting women. Now, David knew that he had a hero complex, by the way. It's not even a speculation. David straight up said, when I was 10, I saw Robin Hood on TV. 
And I just said, I want to be just like him. What strength, what power. And that's why I even became a soldier. It was the closest thing to Robin Hood or a knight in our society. I wanted to be something special. He even opened up about how if he was special, his dad would be proud of him. I mean, it's safe to say that David had some daddy issues. So back to David and Teresa. During Christmas, they're still dating and they're not even romantically involved yet as Teresa was traumatized from being raped by two men not too long ago. So she didn't want any sexual contact. And David, the knight in shining armor, he was okay with it. David did buy her a present. He thought it was his best one yet. It was a dress. Now, Teresa thought it was hideous and she refused to wear it. If he ever asked her about it, she said, I wore it to work and it's at the dry cleaners now. <laughs> yeah. So minus the dress, the two are hitting it off. They're both letting their guards down with one another. But maybe David was a bit more into Teresa. She reminded him of his own mother, which I mean is kind of creepy and very telling of David's relationship with his own mother. So he has daddy issue and mommy yeah, issue? Yeah, just the double whammy. <laughs> okay, so David opened up to Teresa about his ex-girlfriend, Cindy. Yeah, the crazy one. And you know that feeling that you just get as a woman? When you're like, I know there's more to the story. Something is not sounding right. It's just not adding up. Well, that's how Teresa felt about Cindy. At first, she thought maybe it's just jealousy. But the more David talked about Cindy, the more the red flag alarms were going off. She told him one day, David, I just feel like you're hiding something from me. What? Hiding what? I don't know. Just something. I would never hide anything from you. Teresa felt like he was lying about this. But she wanted to go to the next step. She invited him to meet her sister, her brother-in-law. Yeah, the controlling one. The first meeting didn't go great, but it didn't go horribly. And David was happy with that. It was a very neutral stance. He even called his mom to say, Mom, I think I finally found the right woman. Her name is Teresa. And Mom, I get along better with her than any other girl that I've met. But Teresa still had her reservations. She wanted to give the relationship a fair shot. But this nagging feeling was bothering her. David, I just can't shake the feeling that you're hiding something from me. And I feel like it involves Cindy because every time you talk about her, you just... Look, you don't have to tell me, but is there something I need to worry about? Like she thinks that they're still talking? Yeah, maybe. Something is just... Every time he talks about his ex, like, it's weird. Mm. The vibes are weird. And David burst into tears. You're right. I am hiding something, but I can't ever tell you. And he starts bawling his eyes out. So whatever this secret is, I mean, it's been weighing heavy on this guy. God, Teresa, it's so awful. I can't tell you. I can't tell anybody. This is my life that we're talking about. My life. It's okay. Shh, don't cry. You don't have to tell me. Shh. So a few days later, Teresa and David go out to dinner. And David is exhausted. His mental state seemed to be in a decline since this breakdown. And Teresa's worried about him. David, are you okay? And at the dinner table, David looks up at Teresa, tears pooling in his eyes, dark circles. I'm scared that you're going to leave me and I want to marry you. I, I see you with me for the rest of my life. But you're right. I am hiding something and it's not fair to you. <sighs> I killed Cindy's parents. Teresa was stunned. She sat there sinking in her seat. She was trying to control her breathing. And in that small restaurant, she hoped that that little recording device in her purse picked up everything. She hoped that the police got everything that they needed. Ah! And that they were hanging on to every single word he said. Wow, that's a lot, David, but th thanks for opening up to me. I just need to process this, but maybe we can go buy some cigarettes first. Let's leave. I need to go to Kmart. 
Teresa pulled into the Kmart parking lot and David is sitting in the car relieved. Okay, he's excited that Teresa is staying with him. She really is the one. But when the car was finally parked, the door swung open and David West was under arrest for murder. The police pat Teresa on the back and said, good job, Kim. Hey, where did you even come up with the name Teresa Neal? Oh, my God. Oh, it was Agatha Christie's pseudonym when she uh, disappeared for a while. Well, anyway, Kim, good work. Dude, (laughs) is he dumbfounded at that moment? Yes, but it gets even crazier. Kim was not one of the police. She's not a detective. Okay. She was a private investigator. Her ex-boyfriend had taken her up on the offer. Remember when they broke up? Oh my God. She said, I would love, let me know if you need anything. Would love to help. Oh my God. She's bored. She's bored, yes. But Kim wasn't even hired by the police. Yeah, she's bored. Yeah, she was hired by one of Cindy's sisters. One of David's crazy ex-girlfriend's sisters. Oh. But why? So uh-huh. nearly five years before Teresa and David, or I guess Kim and David, there was David and Cindy. Her name is Cynthia Campbell Ray. David actually had the intention of dating Cindy's younger sister, Jamie. And that's just never a great start to the love story. David was hitting on Jamie. So he's studying photography part-time at the University of St. Thompson in Houston, Texas. He runs into a girl named Jamie and he was smitten. Jamie had no opinion, like none. She neither liked him nor hated him. He was just existing. She had no interest. But that Christmas break, Jamie gets a call from David. And he's like telling her, I'm so lonely. I just want to be with you. It's like, please, can you just go on one date with me? Now, I guess Jamie felt bad. Maybe she was in the giving holiday spirit. She agreed to one movie, one and only one movie. That's it. Which, it was not a good call. Because during the date, David managed to go through his entire life's sob story. He even sobbed a little bit. And even afterwards, when Jamie tried to give him the, Hey, we should just be friends. But not really. Like, we should never talk again. (laughs) Signal. He straight up bypassed all those signs and hints and just kept hounding her. He had no idea why Jamie didn't like him. I mean, sure, he had some questionable ideas. He did mention to her that he thinks that all disabled people should be sterilized and that he kind of liked Hitler, but like, not really. I mean, he liked Hitler's message, but he didn't execute it, right? Yeah, that's what he said. And yeah, he was confused why Jamie didn't like him back. Shocking. He would straight up say, I mean, what's so wrong with trying to make the next generation bigger and stronger and healthier? If in the future I could just fill out a form and they could beep, 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 ding, 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 mess with some chromosomes and give me a six foot two genius with blue eyes and blonde hair. What's so wrong with that? And this is essentially what Hitler was trying to do. So like, I don't see the problem. And everyone's like, you're the problem. That's the problem. You. That wasn't all. Jamie watched David get into an incredibly violent fight with, they went on one date. This all happened in one date. Jamie watched David get into an incredibly violent fight with a gas station worker. David straight up tried to run the guy over. What? So can we blame Jamie for trying to get away from David? He kept calling her, hounding her, even showing up to her house. Jamie would tell her live-in housekeeper, Maria, Maria, can you just tell him I'm not home? But David, he's a, he's a special one. He would straight up accuse this poor woman of lying. I mean, she was, but that's none of his business. David would get so mad, so riled up that he actually cursed out Maria. Now, this housekeeper had been with the Campbell family for a really long time. She lived on the property in like a guest house. I mean, they loved her. So naturally, Jamie's dad, James Campbell, he was pissed and thereby declared David banned from the property. 
It was for the best. The guy seemed unhinged anyway. Jamie was glad to hear. Now fast forward to a few months later. David sees Jamie sitting with another young girl on campus. And he approaches them. Hey, Jamie, you haven't returned my call. And and who are you? Oh, th- this is my sister, Cindy Ray. Ah, yes. David remembered. On the first date, Jamie told him about sh- how she had an older sister, Cindy Ray, who had driven a couple of psychiatrists crazy. She was a wild one. They had a crazy first date. <laughs> Just. So David is eyeing Cindy up and down. And again, creepy guy. He decided... She's not really my type. She's a bit too big. Her thighs are a bit too thick. Her face is too round and her midsection looks a little bit too squishy. But you know what? She's not ugly. David closed his eyes and tried to imagine her 30 pounds lighter. And he was like, you know what? I like what I see. And I would like to punch him in the face. Okay. (laughs) So with that imagination, David starts hitting on Cindy, but she's not responding at all. It wasn't even that she was ignoring him. It was just slightly off-putting. David did the rudest thing possible. He put his hand in front of her face and said, Hello, hello, Earth to Cindy. Nothing. Eventually, he gives up, walks away from the two girls. But a few days later, he's walking through campus and he sees Cindy at the same spot, but this time she's alone. Oh, hey. Cindy looks up and her hair is like covering most of her face. Oh, hi. How's it going? Okay. What? Okay, so David sits down and starts talking to Cindy, and at first she barely responded, but then he made a joke, and she would kind of do a slight smile. So there's a personality in there, he thought. David liked Cindy's face close up. He couldn't deny that she was pretty, but he was still a fitness and self-improvement freak, and he had these odd standards for women, so I guess he he wanted to help her. He felt like Cindy could be a supermodel. So out of impulse and just really bizarre social skills, David lifted the hair out from Cindy's face and said, come on now, sit up straight. That's it. Fix your... There. Doesn't it feel nice when you sit up straight? Look, Cindy, you could be a fairly attractive person. Just lose some weight, start dressing better, straighten out your posture, and with a little less makeup, you could be an attractive girl. Cindy smiled weakly. Look at yourself. How much do you weigh? 180. David reached over and squeezed her thigh. Oh my God, this guy, I swear. And he says, well, would you look at that? That's solid, you know? Your thigh is solid. That's not just a blob of lard. You don't look 180. You're not sloppy or flabby. You're proportionate. You still have muscle tone. Now, I'm not sure what kind of woman takes what he says as a compliment, but Cindy do be smiling. Like if a guy that I just met came up to me, pushed my hair out of my face, squeezed my thigh and told me, but don't lose all your hope. Tomorrow's a new day to lose some weight. I would call the police. Uh, hello? Is this real life right now? I would call the police immediately. But then again, Cindy is not normal. And this has nothing to do with her appearance or her insecurities. In fact, Cindy is crazier than David. He just doesn't know it yet. A few days after that, David runs into her again at the same spot. And this time, Cindy seems to be opening up more. He's struck up a conversation with her. You know, you just, you look nothing like Jamie. It's crazy. Oh yeah, it's because I'm illegitimate. I don't have the same mom as her. My dad got a woman pregnant in Italy during World War II, and he made the family promise not to say anything. So they're trying to raise me as normally as possible. David was shocked. Oh, sorry. But then he thought about it, and the math was not mathing. Cindy was 25, but if she was conceived during World War II, even like the last day of the war, she would have been like 40. That didn't make sense. David didn't say anything, though. He just went about his day and went to his part-time job at the bar. Now his phone starts ringing. Hello, this is David. And on the other hand, he heard a very confident, sexy voice. 
Hi, it's Cindy Ray. You want to know something, David? You're cute. You really are. Do you want to go on a date with me? It was so confusing. Like, where did shy Cindy go? Did she just work up the nerve to say this? Like, what is going on? It just didn't make sense. Jamie, the sister, remembers right after Cindy got off the phone with David. She turned around and said, God, he's so gross. Who? David West? He looks like a pig. Have you ever watched him eat? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, like a dog, you know? Somebody that'll just do anything you tell them. But Cindy, why did you just ask him out on a date if he's so unappealing? Well, because he's a dog. It would be so easy to train him. Jamie was not surprised by Cindy's answer. Cindy was... She was a lot. She had always been a lot. She loved being the center of attention. She was the family drama queen and a pathological liar. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. When Cindy was just 17 years old, she ran away from home, met a man named Michael Ray, married him, had two sons with him, Michael and Matthew, but the marriage didn't last. And in typical James and Virginia Campbell fashion, those are Cindy's parents, they came to rescue Cindy. They helped her divorce Michael Ray. They let the family stay with them. They supported her. And since Cindy had dropped out of high school, she refused to work. Now let's talk briefly about the Campbell family setup. The heads of the house were James Campbell, the dad. He was a very accomplished attorney, very strict, but very well respected. And then Virginia Campbell, the mom. The two of them had four daughters, Betty, Michelle, Cindy, Jamie. Now, Cindy wasn't the youngest or the oldest, but she was the special one. Not because her parents loved her more. She just caused a lot of problems. She was that kid. Cindy was known for throwing a tantrum and getting whatever she wanted. So she is their kid. Yeah. Cindy's own sisters didn't even really like her. The girl was weird. One time Jamie got into a fight with her dad about her grades and she ran up the stairs into her room, slammed the door shut and in comes Cindy. Are you okay? You know, Jamie, I've been thinking about it, but we would be so much better off without dad. I think we should kill him. I have an idea on how to do it. Jamie blinked. She She was in trouble for getting a D, you know, like she's not trying to kill her parents. She blinked. Are you freaking crazy? No, no, I'm not. And it would work. I could dress up like a man and wear men's shoes and leave big footprints everywhere. Maybe we could leave some cigarettes around and it would look like a man did it. I can also wear gloves, get rid of fingerprints. Cindy, you're crazy. One time, Cindy sat Jamie down and told her about how evil their own mother was. How Virginia, before Jamie came around, used to abuse Cindy, chained her up to the toilet, completely naked. Jamie knew that her sister was lying because they saw the same sequence of abuse in a TV show a few days ago. Cindy was weird with other people too. She would go around school and insist everyone call her Gabriella. 
I mean, it wasn't even her middle name. It was just out of nowhere. It wasn't even a nickname that she had. She told blatant lies to people about how she was involved with the mafia. And when Cindy couldn't make friends her own age, she latched onto her college professor, Gwen. Gwen had a few things to say about Cindy. Cindy was one of those students that was too scared of failure to even put an effort into her work. During the entire school year, she barely turned in half the assignments. She was really insecure. She was quiet. And Gwen knew that. One day, after Gwen dismisses the whole class, she's at her desk, you know, going over notes, and she feels like someone's eyes are on her, someone's staring at her. She looks up and sees Cindy in the corner of the room, just staring. They make eye contact, and Cindy scurries out of the room. Okay, weird. The next time Cindy did it, Gwen struck up a conversation out of sheer awkwardness because she knows I see you, you know I see you, like what's going on? (laughs) And that's how Cindy became Gwen's friend. I don't know if you could call it that. I think Cindy saw Gwen as a friend. I think Gwen saw her as a troubled girl that just didn't have anybody and she wanted to help. Cindy even started going over to Gwen's house. And yeah, Gwen knew that she was weird. It was obvious that she told up straight up lies, but Gwen tried to find it amusing. Cindy's family, on the other hand, did not find it amusing because Cindy, at 25 years old, had four failed marriages, two kids that she never took care of, no job, no ambition in life. Like, I'm going to be honest, this girl was lazy and she only existed to cause trouble in the house. She refused to learn to drive. She liked being driven around. Now, if you refuse to drive, that's fine, but don't be demanding people for rights. Mm -hmm. That's what she did. Her parents begged her to learn to drive. She refused. And anytime someone else was driving and she was getting into a fight with them, maybe they didn't want to pick her up later, she would just grab the wheel and swerve into oncoming traffic. She was a road safety hazard. See, that's weird. What's going on with her? I don't know. This doesn't sound like any other like story, right? Yeah. She sounds like she weren't abused. She just yeah. straight up weird. Weird, yeah. yeah. But she can't tell David that, that she's 25, four marriages in, two kids. Everybody hates her because she's annoying. So she plays the pity me victim card. She tells David one day, I can't see you anymore. I have to drop out of school because Jamie is not allowed to drive me anymore. It's mommy and daddy. What? Why? Well, my grades are far better than Jamie's, so I'm not allowed at school anymore. What? That makes no sense. David was confused. I mean... Mainly because there was no way that Cindy was getting better grades than Jamie and everybody knew that. Cindy was not the brightest. None of it made sense. Like what kind of, but also what kind of reason is that? Your parents should be happy that you have good grades. Well, they're just always messing with my head. They say that I'm not a good person and they ignore me all the time and they're just so mean. They hate me. I mean, my whole family hates me. What? Why? They gave Jamie a car, but they won't even buy me an old chunker. This is not true. Her dad actually bought her a brand new Buick in order to get her to learn to drive. She refused. Cindy peered up, tears in her eyes. She knew it was working. Cindy knew from the get-go that David had a white knight complex, a hero complex, a savior complex, and it was working like a charm. David immediately felt protective of Cindy. He said, listen, Cindy, I've got this house. It's not much, but you can have a room of your own. You can walk to school from there. It's right on campus. Trust me, I have no ulterior motive. Like, it's just a free place to stay. I I know, I know. It sounds like I'm trying to get with you, but trust me, I'm not going to lay a finger on you. For one thing, you're too fat. Wow. (laughs) Gee, fucking thanks, bro. (laughs) Cindy thought it over and asked, you won't bother me for anything? I give you my word. No strings attached. And that's how Cindy moved into David's spare room. 
and he treated her exactly as he promised. They shared a bathroom, but they were very cordial, like roommates. They watched TV together and spent time together when they wanted, but it was definitely more platonic, at least initially. Which, side note, a thing about David's house. It was a shit show. First of all, David had never even wanted to live there. His mom forced him to buy the duplex. She thought it was a great investment. He's going to live in a unit, rent the other unit out. But he just hated everything about this house, especially the neighborhood. He complained that there were too many gay people around. He bought a gun for protection. I don't know what he was protecting himself from. Did he really think that he was so hot he needed a weapon to ward off the LGBTQ plus community or something? I don't know. I really don't know where this guy's head is at. I'm going to be honest with you, especially because nobody wanted David and nobody wanted his house. Like not even a robber or a thief would be interested. David's house was a dump. There was no heat. The toilet had no lid and you could only flush it by reaching your hand into the toilet, like operations at the back and pull a string. (laughs) Put your hand into the toilet and go ahead. Unclog it yourself. (laughs) The roof was leaking, the windows were gone and replaced with cardboard and foil, the entire house smelt like mold, it was filled with rats and mice, and that's where Cindy would bring her sugar daddy. Yeah, she had a sugar daddy. David was surprised too. The sugar daddy was a short, balding 50-year-old something that would show up decked in gold chains and pinky rings. David pretended to be her brother anytime he came around. And when her other boyfriend came around too, yeah, she had another boyfriend, he was a Japanese-French student. He was convinced that he and Cindy were telepathic. And since he was French, his name is Robert. Cindy would call him Robert. (laughs) Just nonstop. Robert? Robert, sweetie, where are you? (laughs) It's just too much. They eventually break up. And as odd as Cindy was, David was falling in love. (laughs) She had this beautiful singing voice. She was a talented artist and her sketches, she was good at art. The two of them had a lot in common. They were imaginative, witty, bright. They both loved the arts. They were both victimized by their families. David started seeing Cindy as his potential next girlfriend, but not just like a regular girlfriend. He saw her as a fixer upper. Hmm. Listen, what? David realized that he couldn't bulldoze Cindy into changing, though. She responded very poorly to criticism. For example, when he came home from work and complained that the dishes that Cindy did were still too greasy because she didn't use a dish sponge, she just rinsed it with water, she just altogether stopped doing the dishes completely, even her own dishes. But when David started using positive affirmation in a gentle tone, she ate it up. It was like she was painfully insecure, or so he thought. She seemed to be touched by even the smallest compliments, and David felt like all he had to do was build up her confidence. He would drag her in front of a mirror, put his hands on her shoulders, and say, look, you have a good bone structure. Great cheeks, full lips. Look at those pretty eyes, okay? You're overweight. You've got a flat belly, though, and a small waist. Just exercise and diet. You follow some good nutrition plans. You feel good about yourself. Hold yourself upright, your posture, and you'll be great. And Cindy would sob, But ever since I was a kid, I was chubby and I got made fun of. And the other girls in school said that they would pop me like a balloon. I don't even know how to lose weight. I've tried, but I just can't. Well, I can teach you how. We can work out together. I'm going to put you on the marine diet, which is just lean veggies and lean protein. And we can do this. Cindy, can't you see what you're doing? To hell with everybody else and what they think. Stand up for yourself. The only reason you're a victim is because you allow it. Don't accept anything unquestioningly and don't allow anybody to do your thinking for you. Not even me. 
David even introduced Cindy to his mom, Cecilia, who was notorious. Remember, this is the overbearing mom. She was notorious for never liking a single girlfriend of his. But it seemed like Cindy was growing on her. She remembered once that um, she was in the kitchen. Cindy shyly walked up to her. Oh, Mrs. West, is that how you do it? Yep, that's how it's done. Cecilia was slicing potatoes. Cindy said, I- I've never learned things like that. My parents and our housekeeper, they won't teach me. Cindy went in for the kill. She had the injured puppy look on her eyes, and the West family ate it up. Cindy, aren't you hot? Why are you wearing long sleeves? Well, I have scars. My ex-husband used to abuse me, and uh, the reason I can't hear well in one of my ears is because he ruptured them during a beating once. And I, I get made fun of because I don't know how to use deodorant or how to shower properly, but nobody ever really taught me. David's family glanced at each other. Nobody wanted to say it, but it was obvious that she didn't know how to shower. Cindy almost never showered. She never used deodorant or anything. She would just wake up, layer on eau de parfum, or I guess in this sense, eau de toilette, literally, and hoped that it would cover up the smell. It did not. She never even brushed her hair. It was incredibly tangled. When Cecilia went to brush Cindy's hair for her one day, she realized her entire scalp was red and raw. And her heart ached for this girl. I mean, this young woman... She doesn't know how to slice potatoes. She doesn't know how to shower. She doesn't even know how to comb her hair. Like, did anybody teach her a single thing? What kind of parents did she have? One time, the three of them were in the car, David, Cecilia, David's mom, and Cindy. David had cut off a driver, and the guy behind him got so worked up that he fender-bendered into David's car, just like lightly pushed it in the back. So now, both the cars are pulled over on the side of the road, and David is pissed, There's like no way this guy is real. I don't even know how to describe it. He jumps out of the car and starts karate kicking the driver's side door of the other vehicle. Karate kick, karate kick, just kicking and yelling nonstop. Karate kick, karate kick, karate kick. Cecilia is trying to stop her own son when she glances over and Cindy is like thrashing about in her chair in the the car seat. Just like her head is swinging. No, her arms are flailing about. And she kept screaming, just tell me what I've done wrong. Just tell me what I've done wrong, mama. Please just tell me what I did wrong. I won't do it again. Please, mama, please. Mama, stop. Please don't hit me. Cecilia was shocked. The rest of the way home, Cindy did not recognize them. Like it looked like she had been possessed. It took her hours to calm down and get back to quote normal. Cecilia wondered what kind of background does someone need to have in order to have panic attacks to this degree. Like it was so intense. Well, lucky for Cecilia, she's about to find out. One day, David, Cecilia, and Cindy were talking about old childhood memories. David was sharing some of his cute ones. Same with Cecilia. And Cindy was like, oh, uh, I guess I have one too. My first memory, um, I was standing in the hall of our house, the hallway, and I was like 15 months old. And I remember I was standing up holding onto the wall and then I let go and I started walking. I felt my legs moving and my mom was standing in the doorway watching me. So I took one step then another, and I was walking towards my mom. And I was so proud, and I was so happy, and she calmly put her foot out, and she tripped me. The room got silent. Well, that's awkward. David and Cecilia couldn't even believe what they were hearing. I mean, Cindy, what, what kind of family do you have? I don't know. Three months into dating Cindy, David was head over heels for this girl. He felt like this was his little fixer-upper, not even just physically, 
you know, but that was coming along well. In just three months, she lost 30 pounds. She was now down to 150. And he said her hourglass shape was emerging. Her cheekbones were becoming prominent. And in addition to the physical changes, David was making Cindy, and I quote, more sophisticated like himself. He would give her lessons on Roman history, Greek democracy, the threats of communism, World War II, Nazi nationalism, French colonialism. Cindy was bored out of her mind, but she sat through it for David. And whenever they went to the bars together, David could feel men's eyes following Cindy as she walked. And it made him feel even more protective of Cindy. Remember, his hero complex is showing. He thought Cindy was naive and precious. She needed to be protected, especially now that it seemed that so many men wanted her and she had no idea. She was oblivious. This just added to David's attraction for her. He's just one of those guys, again, that feels manly and the most loved when he's protecting a woman. And since he's even more in love with her, he wants to have sex with her. You know, he wants to consummate their marriage. David is a hero, sure, sure, but he's still a guy. Marriage? Oh, consummate their relationship, sorry. So he tries gently kissing her one night, and she pushes him off and says, David, it's no use. I just don't think of you that way. What way? The, uh, sexual way? Well, Cindy, what's the matter with sex? Sex is bad, David. Cindy, have you ever been raped? Cindy turned around and whispered a barely audible, Yes. David backed off, for now. But a few weeks went by and he tried again. And he said, Look, Cindy, I know you're interested in me sexually, and I know that I'm interested in you. And you know it, so what do you say? Cindy looked terrified at first, but eventually she gave in. And oddly enough, Cindy hated penetration, but she would tolerate it if she took on the personality of a seven-year-old girl and called him daddy. So she's not calling him daddy in the way that you think, you know, in the way that you and I are thinking, like in the kinky, like daddy way, right? No, she was doing it in like the voice of a five-year-old calling her dad, daddy. She would revert to this teeny tiny childlike voice that was so scared and meek and fragile. And whenever she started calling David daddy, she would slowly become frenzied and hypersexual. It's just very weird. So David soon realized that Cindy was kinkier than he thought. Sometimes that he would come home to see Cindy just waiting for him on his couch. Like she, there looked like there was not a thought behind those eyes. Like she was possessed. She started teaching him positions. She would rub his back, sing to him and wanted to wash his feet with her hair like Mary Magdalene did with Jesus. David felt like he was being worshipped. He didn't really like that. He didn't really want to be worshipped, but all he wanted in life was love. So it just kind of worked. Gradually, he introduced her to his friends, and he thought that she would be incredibly quiet and introverted. But instead, she surprised him. She was witty. She was funny to be around, a natural entertainer. One day, she started theatrically reciting Shakespeare. David had never felt so attracted to anyone before. I mean, he had read some Shakespeare before, but he was ashamed to admit that he couldn't even place the play. He was so impressed. Cindy was turning out to be the perfect girl. And in private, she was opening up about her horrible childhood. Now, you see, Cindy was a bit of an interesting girl. She had issues, don't get me wrong. The author believes that she probably had bipolar disorder or some other sort of personality disorder, which, again, doesn't excuse the behavior. I think it kind of explains why she was unstable. But I do think that Cindy was just an evil person. A personality disorder doesn't make someone evil. An evil person is evil. So Cindy would spin these fantastic lies about her childhood for David. She loved feeling like the little broken girl that he needed to fix. She would get him riled up, wanting to protect her. And it made her feel 
like he was in the palm of her hand. She would just have to say, David, I'm scared. And he would jump into action, literally ready to shoot someone. She sat there and told him how she was the ugly duckling in the family. Everybody hated her. Her parents favored the three other sisters. Cindy's clothes were always hand-me-downs. The other girls had allowances, but Cindy had to earn her money. And anytime Cindy tried to talk about her day, her mother Virginia would look at her and say sternly, silence is golden. But if Cindy kept talking, Virginia would scream, shut up, get in the other room, I don't want to see her face. And if Cindy refused, Virginia would slap her across the face. One time, Cindy's uncle praised her for her singing voice, and her mom dragged her out of the uncle's house, and Cindy was never allowed to return. She just wasn't allowed to be around any family members that actually liked her or saw something in her. Sometimes Virginia would lock Cindy in a closet and Cindy would beg, please, mother, please, can I come out? And her mom would walk away with a sing-songy voice and say, Cindy, you're not loud enough. I can't hear you. Are these true or these are her? Oh, yeah, these are not true. Yeah, yeah, not true. Cindy said she would bang on the closet door until her knuckles bled and her mom would yell, Harder, Cindy, I can't hear you. You have to knock harder. Cindy would be locked in the closet for hours at a time while the other girls were taken out on shopping trips. And when Cindy was just seven, Virginia started chaining her to the bathroom, naked, for hours. Cindy still remembers that one day, the old creepy yard man peered through the window, saw her naked and chained up, and Cindy was terrified. She tried to hide her tiny body behind the toilet. But that wasn't all. Cindy claimed that she never had a Christmas present. The one time that she did get a gift, it was a doll from Grandma. But her evil sister dismembered the doll. And when she got a dress for her 11th birthday, her mom encouraged the other sisters to cut the dress to shreds. Cindy was so excited when Jamie was born because Jamie was like my baby, my little sister. I took care of her. I dressed her. I bathed her. I fed her. I thought she would love me. But she ended up just like the others. David wondered why Virginia hated Cindy so much, but loved her other daughters. It just didn't make sense to him. The only thing that he could think of was that Virginia, the mom, had a mild spine deformity. It wasn't super obvious, but it was there. And David called her a hunchbacked freak. And he thought maybe she hated Cindy because she was jealous. Virginia knew that Cindy was beautiful and talented. She was too attractive to mesh with the rest of the Campbells. Cindy even just existing was provoking Virginia's insecurity. But when it came to the dad, David was confused. Cindy always praised her father, calling him a clever lawyer, bright, witty, highly respected. She was in awe of him at times. She was so proud of her father for purchasing a two-acre estate in a nice area in Houston. But Cindy did say she was traumatized by her own father, that when she was little, she had appendicitis. Her parents waited and waited to do anything about it. And by the time that Cindy was taken to the hospital, it was really bad. After she got out, her father was so mad for some reason. Cindy had this big scar on her stomach and her father decided to beat the incision point with a brass buckle. And whenever David tried to talk shit about Cindy's father, she'd almost take her dad's side. It's like she put her dad up in an almost godlike status. Now, it's speculated that she actually did have, or pretended to have more likely, the Electra complex. Do you guys remember the Oedipus complex? It's um, a theory where during a boy's development, he might be romantically attracted to his mother and feel competition with his father. Well, the Electra complex is the other side of it. When a daughter competes with her own mother for their father's love and affection. If you believe this theory is true, then the Electra complex typically takes place when a child is like three to six years old. Now, it's not that the child wants to sleep with the parent. That is not what that implies. But do you see those videos where the child doesn't like seeing mommy or daddy kissing? 
Or maybe they want to have a fake wedding with their father. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like that, maybe. But Carl Jung, um, the psychiatrist, he believes if children don't overcome the Oedipus or the Electra phase in their psychosexual development, then they will grow up to be father fixated or mother fixated. Honestly, there's not much evidence to back this up. It's less of a real medical term or a mental health diagnosis, but it's more used as an elevated way of saying somebody has mommy issues or daddy issues and they want to date someone that looks like their dad or acts like their dad, you know? But Cindy's went further than that. Cindy claimed that her father raped her as a child. Now, this is most likely not true. Nobody, there is, I mean, technically there's no proof to say it's not true, to say that it is true, but everybody that knew James Campbell knew him to be an upstanding man. None of the other sisters, they have like vehemently denied all of these allegations. But this is what Cindy is saying. She said that her father raped her as a child and she said it all started when she was just 12 years old. She was standing in front of a mirror, brushing her hair, and her dad came up behind her and told her she was a pretty girl and that she was being a quote, good girl. And then he held her by the shoulders, pressed her up against the counter and began stroking her breast. And Cindy cried while she told David about how her father had eased her onto the bed. And Cindy would stop telling the story to David and would scream and cry, but I'm a good girl. So like in the middle of the, her recounting the rape, Mm. she, the alleged rape, she would have a panic attack, but a lot of people that knew Cindy said that a lot of her panic attacks seemed very staged and bizarre. So David now finally saw the connection. Cindy's dad had made her feel that sex with him was her being a good girl, but sex with other people was evil. That's why she called David daddy, and that's the only way sex was tolerable for her. And he just felt so bad for her. He started stroking her hair and said, of course you're a good girl, Cindy. You're a victim in all of this. David wanted nothing more than to jump up and run to the police with Cindy in tow. But James Campbell was a lawyer. He probably had all the judges in his pocket. Why else wouldn't have Cindy reported him already? Well, Cindy, have you tried talking to your mom? Did you tell her? Yeah, she knows. And I think that's why she treats me more like a rival than a daughter. Then Cindy dropped the biggest bombshell. David, daddy is my son, Michael's father. This is a complete lie, by the way. David was shocked. Michael looks like daddy because he's from daddy. Little Matthew is from my first husband, though, but not Michael. That's why I even got married in the first place, because daddy wanted to make sure that I legitimized the child. All of this was too much for David. He hated the Campbells ever since they banned him from their house after he essentially stalked Jamie, but now he detested them. He thought that they were evil. And Cindy, well, Cindy was a victim. She was, she's perfect. She had slimmed down to 130 pounds with a 24-inch waist. And she was a bigger victim than he had ever imagined. David was even more in love with her. Now, I do think that the love was real from David's part in his own sick and twisted way. I'm not saying it's a good love or a right love. The love was strong because other than Cindy's looks, Cindy was a hard person to be around. Cindy hated cooking, cleaning. She didn't like the idea of working. She didn't want to study. She did nothing all day. David tried to get her to work, but she would just get fired or walk out after not even a full day at work. So David tried to step up. He used to work as a bartender, but now he needed to make more money for the two of them. So he got a job in construction. He was going to help construct a high-rise mirrored glass building. And within a few weeks, he learned why his job paid so well. Because you have to stand on top of a four-inch steel beam that was 70 stories up. Two men had already fallen to their deaths, and another one was critically injured. It also didn't help that David had a fear of heights. 
but he would do anything for Cindy at this point, anything. And when David got home from work, Cindy hadn't helped at all. She didn't cook, she didn't clean, but David never complained. He just wanted to spend time with her after he cleaned the whole house. They had a really weird relationship. One time, Cindy told him that a man had driven past the house 10 times. And she said, that's the man. There he goes again. And David got up from the sofa, pulled out his gun and started firing at the car. Cindy ran up and hugged David from behind as if she was a scared little kitten. And he protectively put his his arm around her and said, well, that asshole won't be coming back. He loved playing the hero. And Cindy knew this. That's why she made herself the perfect victim. David wanted to protect her from all the men in the world, the cruel world itself, her own family and her dad. Speaking of Cindy's dad, David started to grow an unhealthy obsession with James Campbell. David started to wonder if James had something that he didn't have. If Cindy missed the the sex, like you mean the rapes, the fictional rapes that never happened. But David started wondering whether or not Cindy liked it. It didn't help that Cindy kept calling him daddy in bed, but also that she only called him that in this teeny tiny childlike voice and it made him feel like a pervert, like a child abuser. And when he tried to explain how fucked up it was, Cindy would say, no, 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 my father's a good man. The incest was my fault. It was my fault. My dad is wonderful. It's me that's bad. I was a bad girl. David thought the whole thing was just sick. Cindy, if someone was doing this shit to me, I would fucking kill them. I know, I just don't know how. Look, when you decide you got to do something like that, all you got to do is you got to do it, you know? If the reasons are right, it's justifiable and unavoidable. Then it's just a matter of mechanics. You just do it. Cindy stayed quiet. It's not like she had cut her parents off. She still needed them for the money. She would visit them, beg for money, which they would give her most of the time because they were good parents, maybe too good of parents. David didn't know this. He thought Cindy's parents were holding Cindy's kids hostage, and that's why she went back to see them, to be in her kids' lives. That could not be further from the truth. She didn't give a rat's ass about her kids. And all of Cindy's siblings, now that they were grown, they were urging their parents, like, you got to cut her off. She's not learning. She has no consequences ever. You need to just cut her off. At this point, she's going to be nearly 30. Like, you got to get rid of it. But the parents would just say, kids, we love Cindy like we love all of you. And we don't just love her when she's good. We love her all the time. But after each visit, Cindy would run back to David's arms in tears. She said, it's starting again. David would try to be understanding. But even he was getting frustrated with Cindy. She's 29, refusing to even take out the trash. She contributed nothing to the house. Nothing, really. She didn't even make her own bed. She still refused to learn to take showers, and her clouds of perfume barely masked her BO. And honestly, it just gave everyone a headache. She almost killed David's dog by feeding him pure caviar, which, like, they're on a budget, but she, for some reason, likes to buy caviar. And David yelled at her, dogs can't excrete salt like humans. She said, oh, sorry, I'll just get salt-free caviar next time. Like, not only is she not contributing, but her existence is causing problems. I know that sounds mean, but she's one of those people that, like, doesn't contribute, but just causes problems. And Cindy is actually evil, so don't be offended by that statement. And that's not even what makes her evil. We'll get into all of that later. But the relationship with her and David was really starting to fall apart. Cindy would go to the bars with him and encourage guys to stick around and hit on her. She loved the attention. Sometimes Cindy would take off with the guy and wouldn't come home for days. I mean, yeah. David would be so worried, but that's just how she was. Anytime David tried to bring her to reality and tell her, you can't just lounge all day. You can't just not shower. You got to do something. She would get up and leave to make him stressed out. And eventually when she came back, David was so worried that she had been gone for so long that he would treat her like a queen. And then eventually things would go back to normal. 
And it would get toxic. And then he would try to get her to do something. And then she would run away again. And then it would repeat and repeat. Sometimes David would find her on a bed smoking weed with a crowd of guys just circling, sitting around the bed with her. Cindy would look up at David in the doorway with her big puppy eyes. And David thought at that moment, man, she's just too insecure to tell the guys no. That's why she finds herself in these potentially dangerous situations. But the truth is, Cindy loved the attention. She loved every last bit of it. Sometimes Cindy would run to her old art teacher's house. Remember Gwen? Mm -hmm. She stayed with Gwen when she got a nose job. She would rant to Gwen about how David beats her every single day and how he doesn't know and how she doesn't know what to do. Cindy would tell these awful stories about her family to Gwen. It seemed like nobody was on Cindy's side ever. Cindy told her that her father didn't love her. Her mother didn't love her, and the two of them didn't even love each other. They were only married because they had kids. But Betty, the older sister, she ended up being a druggie and a burnout, and Jamie, the younger sister, was an R-word, and the older sister, a different one, was a lesbian, and the mom is just an old hunchback. Like, these are what Cindy is telling Gwen. She said her own mother was jealous of her because the dad loves Cindy the most, and how daddy didn't like sleeping with mom because she's an old hunchback. Just a lot of bizarre claims. The thing that Gwen noticed, though, was that Cindy never talked about her sons, ever. She never talked about what they ate, how they were doing, what stage of life they were in, the things that most mothers talk about. She Mm -hmm. never did. It was like there was zero bond between Cindy and her kids. It was like they weren't even her kids. In fact, they called Virginia and James mom and dad. Another strange thing is that whenever Gwen and Cindy would go out, Cindy would flash her boobs at complete strangers. What? She would say, hey, look at these. You like what you see, babe? Whenever guys would approach Cindy, she would seductively say, I know what you want, big boy. And Gwen would just sit there feeling super awkward. And one day, a male friend of Gwen's came over, and the next day, Cindy had sex with him. Gwen was like, that's strange, but uh, I guess, how was it? Oh, God, hideous. He's the worst-looking naked man that I've ever seen. Then why did you have sex with him? Well, you know, I felt like I owed him something. He gave me a ride. Anyway, his penis looks like a misshapen carrot. I think I'm going to call him Carrot. Oh, and his ass is missing. It's like it's been amputated and his teeth look like corn. Then Cindy had sex with another friend of Gwen's, to which Cindy said, he's small, you know, but Gwen, I've been doing these exercises and I've got it so tight that I can take on a insert slur. But the line was crossed when Cindy claimed Gwen's husband tried to come on to her. Gwen did not believe it. And honestly, I didn't believe it either. The whole story was absurd. Allegedly, he came up to Cindy and said, hey, Cindy, I'm big, real big. And then whipped out his penis. Uh, Gwen was shocked. She's thinking about kicking Cindy out. And that day she gets home from work and she's like, "Okay, maybe I should kick her out today. And she hears her teenage son screaming, help me, mom, help. She slams open the door to his room and Cindy is laying in his bed saying, I don't want to just be another notch in your bed. And he's like, mom, get this weirdo out of here. She's trying to get with me. And that is when Gwen had enough and she kicked Cindy out. Now, all of these instances weren't just in one time. Cindy would actually go back and forth from David's and Gwen's and eventually she would get a place in her dad's four unit apartment. The units were small. They were like studio apartments, but Cindy was excited for a fresh start. I would like to say that she changed and got her life together, but you know that's not true. She never cleaned. She left half-eaten dishes on the counters till they were moldy. She left wrappers and tissues laying around. She never vacuumed, never dusted, or cleaned anything, including herself. The entire place smelled like something had died in there. But Cindy didn't care. She poured herself a bottle of eau de toilette and went out clubbing. She flirted with every guy that she saw and she talked about how she wanted to be an artist or get into acting. 
So how does she try to get into acting? Well, she goes to a local comedy club and she tries her hand at stand-up comedy. And it doesn't go well because um, nobody told Cindy that you actually have to be funny. So she just wore a low-cut top and thought that her boobies were going to distract the audience and dazzle them and she would be on a fast track to stardom. It did not work. And whenever Cindy was kicked out of a club or dropped from the comedy club, she would call David. Oh, David, I'm so scared. It's 2 a.m. I'm at the club and nobody will drop me off at home. I'm scared. And David would get up out of bed at 2 a.m. and give Cindy a ride home. Cindy would act like nothing had changed the entire drive back, as if they were still dating. David was completely oblivious to the fact that Cindy was taking advantage of him. He would drive her around, take her shopping, give her money, and got nothing in return, except for this small sliver of hope that they'll get back together eventually. All Cindy had to do was put on her best innocent girl voice and say, David, you're my only friend. And just like that, he was hooked again. And even though it was pretty clear that Cindy was seeing other guys, I guess she just had this magnetism about her. Maybe she did crazy things. I mean, because she did crazy things. And later guys would admit that they were embarrassed to say that they stayed for as long as they did. Another guy that she dated said that she demanded they break into a zoo and swim with the seals. She wanted to wash the guy's feet with her hair, but in a hotel fountain in the lobby. She jumped out of moving cars. Like, she was just a lot. She also shit-talked her grandma and started adding her grandma into the abuse story. Cindy said that her whole family abused her. And now that she was living in the four-unit apartment complex that her dad owned, well, a unit was given to the grandma. So she was literally neighbors with her grandma. And she claimed that her grandma was stalking her. (laughs) She would say, the first thing I'm going to do when I get ownership of the fourplex is I'm going to kick her out. Funny thing is, that isn't how it works. James bought the fourplex because he could distribute it evenly amongst his four daughters. Each one would get a unit. And when Cindy would feel these guys and David slipping away, she would call David and say, Oh, David, you were so right. My parents, it started all over again. My father is trying to rape me. And David felt so disgusted and protective over Cindy, his now ex-girlfriend, that he even let her stay whenever she felt unsafe. Because, you know, her daddy did own the apartment after all. And the more Cindy came over, the more distraught the two of them got. And one day Cindy said, David, do you remember what you said? If anybody did something like this to you, this bad, that you would kill them? Sure, I remember. Well, you're right. I think you're right. We should. It's the only way I'll ever be free. David, you know that they deserve it. Think about what they've done to me. Will you do it? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I I wasn't volunteering. I was just saying if someone did that to me, Cindy, I would kill them. But David... Listen, Cindy, if you killed them, I sure as hell wouldn't blame you. That's what I was saying. But I can't do it, David. Yeah, you can. I I wouldn't even know how. Well, I can help you. I'll tell you how to do it, but I can't do it myself. Here's what you do. You get a gun that's not traceable. You pick a time and place where there's no witnesses. Maybe at night when everybody's asleep. You make sure you don't leave any evidence. You get an alibi. You wear gloves. And if there's any possibility of being seen, you wear a disguise. Cindy was concentrating on every little thing that he said and asking follow-up questions. You're right, David. That's how we'll do it. Again, I didn't say that I was going to do it. Think about it. Look at me. Look at me, David. It's happening again. Think about what they're doing to me. And after that, David did think about it. He thought about it all the time. And he believed her. But that wasn't enough for Cindy. She screamed at him. My mother wanted to drown me once. She's part of this whole thing. We need to kill them both. She would never leave me alone, even if my father was gone. And listen... I'm liable to inherit some money, maybe three to four million dollars, because once we split it all with my sister, I'll probably get like four million dollars and you can have half of it. Now, four million dollars in today's time is like twelve million dollars. 
Wow. So it's a lot of money. Cindy, I'm not a hitman. If I, if I do it, it's not for the money. It's for the principal. Well, are you going to do it or not, David? I don't know. Let me just think about it for a few days, please. David thought about it, and he thought James was sick, you know? He wished he could call the police, but he believed that Cindy's dad, James, had connections to judges. And there would be no consequences for a lawyer like that. It would just make things worse for Cindy. And as for Cindy's mom, she was a horrible mother. So slowly, David is getting on board. Side note, maybe it's worth mentioning that Cindy never worked a day in her life, and she had no concept of money whatsoever. She thought that her parents were worth at least like... 50, 60 million dollars, right? And mm-hmm. she would get a couple million in cash yeah. and she could live off the rest of her life and, you know, they, they have real estate. And listen, the family has good money, but collectively, they're probably worth about a million or two. And most of it was in their house, their primary house. And they only had a four-unit apartment complex as real estate. So again, it's nothing to scoff at, but with the four sisters, when all the assets are divided, the sisters would each get a few hundred thousand dollars at best, which is about $900,000 in today's time. So, I mean, it's, again, a lot of money, but Cindy thought that she would be living like the Kardashians for the rest of her life if her parents were dead. No concept of money, which I think was the main motivator in Cindy wanting them dead. There was no abuse. They were not sexually abusive. Cindy had been cut off from her parents. They did not want to give her more money. This was her last resort. This was how she was going to live lavish and never work a day in her life. She was lazy. I hate to say it, but she was lazy. She figured killing was easier than holding down a job. And that's where David came in. David was perfect. He was ex-Marine. He knew how to kill. He was gullible. She had him wrapped around his finger, her finger. And add to that his hero complex. I mean, it was perfect. Simply put to Cindy, David was convenient. Now back to David. He thought about it and he wanted to do it. But in order to finally say yes, he asked Cindy to tell him in depth about the rapes and the abuse to get him riled up. And they laid in bed in the dark and she whispered in his ear. I mean, the whole thing is so twisted and sick. She whispered, daddy came up behind me. My hair fell over my shoulders. He pulled it back and stroked it. He put his hands on my shoulders and told me I was pretty. He stroked my breast and I was aroused. I was confused. And he told me, it's okay. It's okay. You're a good girl. You're daddy's little girl. And it's okay because it's daddy. And then he put me on the bed. Just think about how many times he did that to me. And how my mother, still after all of that, she will never leave me alone. David felt like he had no choice. He said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And they start plotting. David taught Cindy basic hand signals and he told her, we can't say one fucking word when we're in that house. Too many people know our voices. David taught her how to breathe silently, a technique that he learned while hunting deer. David forced Cindy to walk up and down a flight of stairs dozens of times until he was satisfied that she wasn't making noise. He learned the layout of the parents' house, and they practiced what to say to the police when they were questioned, because 100% they would be questioned. He said, don't be too cool, Cindy. Act upset, scared. Remember, your mother and your father have just been killed. The cops aren't expecting you to be calm about it. Look for their tricks. They'll separate us, and they'll say things like, you might as well confess. We know the whole story. We got this, we got that. David already told us, or so-and-so already saw you. It's all bullshit. Don't give them a thing. Make them prove it. Now, the two of them were planning for a while. And David asked, hey, what do you think this will do to your sons? You know, it's their grandparents. I mean, they call them mom and dad. Oh, don't worry about it. They're mostly attached to Maria, the housekeeper. She's more parent than mother and daddy. But you don't think your sons will be upset? They'll get over it. What kind of mother, what kind of person says that? Her boys were seven and eight years old. Now, the night of the murders, the other kids were gone. 
And it was just James, Virginia, Maria the, ho- Maria, the housekeeper, and the two sons in the house. Maria, like I said, lived on the property, but in a small guest house. Now, that night, the AC in her room was broken. So the Campbells were like, hey, just stay in the main house in the guest room. But Maria was like, no, like, it's fine. You guys are doing family movie night. I feel like the fifth wheel. I'm just going to go to sleep. So she leaves. Around 10 p.m., Cindy comes over to ask to borrow money. But mainly, she was there to unlock a window on the ground level so that she could creep in back at night. Then it was time for David and Cindy to come up with their alibi. They start bar hopping, making friends that night, asking people for their names. David even showed a bartender how to mix a few exotic drinks to make sure that the bartender would remember his face. And around 2 a.m., when the bars closed, they left. They were going to tell the police that at this point they went to go home to have sex. But in reality, they drove over to the Campbell house. They sat in the car for a second and David went over it with Cindy again. Don't talk inside. We'll stand still in the house for a few minutes while our eyes get adjusted to the dark. We'll listen if anybody is awake. And then it's just a matter of shoot them and get the fuck out. They both changed into dark clothes in the car. Cindy wore a ski mask and had her hair tucked in. And David said with her height and weight, she looked like another man. Looked like two men breaking in and that was good. They both wore gloves so that they don't leave fingerprints. David was annoyed because Cindy refused to cut her nails, even though they were super long and sharp so they could easily cut through the glove and tear them. But I guess beauty is first. David smeared mud on the license plates so nobody could read the plates. And they started walking up the driveway around 3.30 a.m. David felt so uneasy. The entire driveway was littered with crunchy leaves and snapping twigs. He felt like every step was a landmine. But they make it to the window. They creep into the house, wait a few minutes, adjust their eyes to the darkness. David got out his gun and very quietly, he undid the safety. They start making their way up the stairs. Cindy slowly opened the master bedroom door and her hand was slithering up against the wall. She found the light switch and David said, hit it. The room was flooded with light. Everything jumped into focus. Cindy rushed out the master bedroom door and David stepped towards the bed. He had his gun out. He was about to shoot, but he tripped over some blankets, lost his balance, repositioned his arms, and shot. He hit James in the neck. The gunshot was so loud, his ears were starting to ring. Then David aimed at the woman. He hit Virginia in the arm. Fuck, fuck, fuck. He needed to concentrate. The third round hit James in the eye. The fourth hit Virginia's head, and for good measure, he got up closer to the bed and fired another shot into each of their chests. The whole thing lasted 10 to 12 seconds, and he ran out the bedroom. Cindy, where the fuck are you? She was nowhere to be found. He rushed down, and she was in the living room on her hands and knees, clawing at the rug. What the fuck are you doing? I I dropped my glove. Come on, let's just get out of here. But my glove, I dropped. Fuck the glove, Cindy. She couldn't find the glove? No. And he pushed her out of the house and he just kept thinking, with all that adrenaline rushing in his system, he couldn't help but think, what the fuck? This bitch is crazier than I thought. She dropped that glove on purpose. Why else would she drop the glove? Why would you even take off the glove? It's a, it's a tight glove. Yeah. It doesn't just fall off. There was no reason for her to take it off. What the fuck? She wanted to get caught. It's speculated that Cindy dropped it so that she could later prove her innocence. Like he forced her to go, but I dropped my glove on purpose as a signal for help that he has taken me hostage and I was being held captive by him and he forced me to watch him murder my parents. No way. That's the speculation, yeah. What? So they get in the car and David starts driving away and he starts discarding of his and Cindy's clothes out the window. They threw their murder weapon in the bayou as well as the gloves. And when they were all cleaned up, they changed, went to a house party where there was about 50 to 60 people, some that David already knew, so that they could vouch for their whereabouts. By this point, the police were already at the Campbell house. 
How you ask? Did the neighbors see? Were the gunshots that loud? Well, remember the blankets that David tripped over? Uh huh. They weren't blankets. It was Matthew and Michael, Cindy's sons. What? They were sleeping in the room on sleeping bags. They had woken up, but they were too terrified to move or even look up. So he didn't notice them. No, he was so caught up on just trying to shoot. But after David ran out and the coast was clear, the boys ran to Maria in the guest house and woke her up. They called the police. So when Cindy was later alerted that her parents were murdered, she just moaned, "No!" And even at the funeral, she was moaning, "No!" And David came with her, and he was so disappointed. He it was closed casket, but he wanted to see the bodies because he wanted to see his aim. He thought his shots were at least a B plus. Can you believe this? This guy is worried about his aim at a funeral of the people that he just murdered. Later, the couple find out that the kids were in the room, and they start panicking. So they decide that they're going to take Cindy's kids for a while. Since Cindy was their mom, she had full custody. Um, the grandparents never like filed for custody because Cindy didn't care. Mm-hmm. The grandparents just got them, right? Oh yeah, those are her own yeah. kids. Wow. So who was going to stop Cindy from taking her kids? They couldn't. Which side note, Cindy knew the kids were going to be in the room, and that made David lose his mind. Like, is that why she ran out? Did she want him to be caught? Like, the whole thing was strange. Maybe she wanted to do the whole, I was held hostage by him, abused. I already told Gwen and all these other people that I was abused by him for so long. And the kids would say that they saw David kill the grandparents. She would be the ultimate victim. Her abusive boyfriend not only violated her, hurt her, held her hostage, but killed her parents and forced her to be there. Anyway, the couple took the kids and they hated her. Like, the kids hated Cindy. Literally, they were terrified of her. She was practically a stranger to them. Does the, did the kids see him? No. So the couple grilled the kids nonstop about what they saw, and they saw nothing. Now, the little one, he was just crying the whole time. Like, for the couple of days that he was with the couple, he just wouldn't stop crying. And uh, David said, listen, Matthew, who the fuck do you think you are? I realize that you love Maria, but you got to face the facts. Look at your brother. He's not crying. He's smart enough to realize that this is reality, you know? You're not going to be here any longer than you have to be, but you're making yourself obnoxious by constantly crying. And we realize you want Maria, but there's nothing that can be done about that. The world does not run on what you want. You just got to you just gotta face up to that. Nobody wants to be around someone that's whining like a baby all the time. You know damn good and well that you're not really crying, you know? You're just making noise. Eventually, the couple was satisfied that the boys knew nothing, and they dumped them back with Cindy's family. Which, by the way, the whole family was suspicious of Cindy. Cindy barely waited for her parents to be buried to start arguing for money. When she came to the family house to talk about the inheritance, she wore a shirt that said, Double Trouble. It's just really insensitive and weird. James's brother, the uncle, was the administrator of the estate. And he said the will was being verified. But first, do you guys want to take one thing from the house as remembrance? So Betty, she took the piano. Michelle took the family's favorite rug. Jamie didn't take anything. And Cindy, she said, well, I guess the TV is the most sellable. I'll take that. Now, when Cindy found out that she was just going to get a few hundred thousand dollars, she was pissed. She hired a ton of lawyers to fight with her family, which was counterproductive because she essentially promised away most of the money she was going to get. Truly, there was not a single forethought in Cindy's head. And this just caused Cindy to spiral even further. She played that role even harder, the role of the injured baby bird. She started complaining that she was having these insane headaches. David and his mom, Cecilia, rallied around her, trying to protect her. Meanwhile, she's with her lawyers, aggressively hounding them to get more money out of her sisters. And in the end, the sisters were so sick of Cindy that they gave her far more than what was owed to her. They gave her the Kingston four-unit apartment building she was living in, and she wanted the right to kick out Grandma Helen so she could rent it out. 
the sisters agreed to it because they believed that their sister had something to do with the parents' murder and having their grandma living in a building with her ultimately would just not be safe. She was, she was given cash and other belongings. The total inheritance for Cindy was around $300,000, which in today's time would be about $900,000. Can you imagine inheriting a million dollars? Like, that's a lot. But Cindy was not content. She owed a ton of that money to back legal fees. And remember how she promised half of it to David? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there was no way she was going to go through with that. So she just ghosted him. She ignored him. And he felt so distraught. I mean, his entire life, he killed two people for this woman. And now she was refusing to talk to him. So Cindy is back to not living like Kim Kardashian. And the double homicide of her parents was essentially for nothing. But Cindy's sisters never gave up. They knew the police couldn't put Cindy behind bars. So they hired Kim Paris, a private investigator. And they initially wanted Kim to get close to David so that he could divulge about if Cindy had said anything to him. The sisters had no idea that David was involved. They had no idea that he was the one that pulled the trigger. And all of that resulted in Kim getting a confession from him. And it's funny, because if Cindy had been nicer to David, he would never have wanted to talk to Teresa, and he would never have confessed. But his confession would get both of them arrested. David would plead guilty to first-degree murder and testify against Cindy. Cindy was found guilty of two counts of capital murder. They were both sentenced to life in prison. Cindy died in prison last year from natural causes. And I think uh, David has been denied parole like a million times. And that is the wild story of David who honestly had two really shitty relationships, okay? First, he dates Cindy. Listen, he needs to take responsibility. He did murder two people. But then the next person he thinks he loves is a private investigator that was hired by Cindy's family. Like, what is this? Yeah. I don't even know what to say. What a life. What a life. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.